um, the results were not accepted and we lost more than half of the what was then you know Pakistan um, uh, as a result and I think uh, what has happened over time is that the military uh, establishment has become more and more insecure um, and and that insecurity has meant uh, greater attempts to manipulate and control uh, not just re- the election electoral process and its technicalities, but there's a whole sort of foreplay that happens beforehand about and and alliances that are made. And you know, in Pakistan, it's 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 almost, it's common knowledge for people to assume that governments are made. Um, it's not that elections uh, don't like that people's Alia, votes don't Alia, you have ten matter. seconds. Ten seconds. Okay. Um, so it's not that people's votes don't matter. It's just it's just that you know the military will certainly manipulate the results. Ali Amir Ali, Pakistani political activist and organizer, thank you so much for joining us. Muniza Jahangir, journalist and host of a political talk show on Pakistan's leading news network. That does it for the show. I'm Nermeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. A happy early birthday to Messiah Rhodes. Democracy Now is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria. Tar- Sena, Tammy Voronoff, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, and Te Maria Estudio. Thank you so much for joining you. Joining you? Joining me. Hello, I'm Eugene Rashad. Join me every Saturday from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. for the best in jazz on your community radio station, KBOO 90.7 on your FM dial. But I dig, and I know you dig, because I got four requests for this thing already today. Strutting right away. That was KBOO volunteer disc jockey George Page. Page has been playing jazz and popular black music on KBOO for the past 12 years. What I do to the audience, I draw, hopefully, is to please them with all types of black music. Mostly, what you can't hear as a rule on uh, larger black-oriented stations in L.A. or San Francisco. I play a lot of blues and a lot of jazz. All of it's black-oriented, but it's not the cuts you're going to hear on the other jazz shows. It's not the cuts you're going to hear on uh, other stations, because other stations just don't play jazz and blues in a black vein the way I do here. This is KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News, Oregon business and labor leaders work on a compromise deal on campaign finance regulation... Federal authorities okay the Burnside Bridge replacement plan. And we speak with the executive director of the McMinnville Short Film Festival, which starts later this month. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 9th, 2024. I'm Josh Salem. And I'm Reed Johnson. Oregon business and labor groups are negotiating campaign finance caps for state races behind closed doors. This could result in the first contribution limits in Oregon elections in decades. OPB reports that business groups, including Oregon business and industry, as well as representatives of large labor unions, have been been in meetings for over a week. 
The details of the negotiations remain confidential, but the participation of historically opposed groups is significant. Labor and business often find themselves at odds in political campaigns and policy debates. They would like to have a proposal before state lawmakers by the end of the short session. As major political donors, both have a vested interest in an upcoming campaign finance ballot measure planned for this year's election. Initiative Petition 9, or IP9, enforces strict contribution limits for individuals, political parties, and interest groups, as well as rules requiring increased disclosure of campaign backers. Could spell the end of business and labor's large spending efforts to their respective causes. A coalition of labor groups representing government employees, teachers, grocery workers, and others proposed their own competing ballot measure. It loosened contribution regulations while creating a public funding system for candidates who limit individual donations. Honest Elections Oregon, one of the architects of IP9, panned the proposal for including loopholes. Oregon remains one of just five states without limits on political contributions. Oregon Democrats have long failed in their stated intentions to limit campaign giving. Most recently, a House bill capped limits, uh, capping limits passed the Oregon House in 2019, but was never enacted. Oregonians, for their part, have signaled their willingness for such legislation. 78% voted in support of a 2020 ballot measure, which modified the state constitution to explicitly allow contribution caps. Their approval paves the way for IP9 and comes as a strong rebuttal to the actions of large political donors like Nike's Phil Knight, who donated $3.75 million to conservative independent Betsy Johnson and later $1 million to Republican Christine Drazen in their respective 2022 gubernatorial elections. The Federal Highway Administration has given the OK on the Burnside Bridge replacement project. The environmental review process is now complete meaning it's time to move on to the design phase. Construction could start as early as 2027. The project is called Earthquake Ready Burnside Bridge, and it's meant to replace the 98-year-old bridge with one that can withstand a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. Most of the bridges over the river were not built to withstand the big one. Multnomah County is prioritizing the Burnside Bridge as a critical lifeline between the opposite sides of the river. It's centrally located, and in the event of an earthquake, would be a crucial route for getting people and emergency supplies across the river. The federal environmental review process has taken four years, and it has to be completed before a project can use federal funding. It's been in the works since 2016, and recent inflation means designers have had to scale back their ambitions, some to keep the cost under $900 million. About a third of those funds come from local vehicle registration fees, and over half of the funding will need to come from a federal grant. Construction could be finished by 2031 if crews start in 2027. In that interim period, Portlanders will have to do without. Project planners say they'll need to tear down the existing bridge first and build a new one in the same place. Corporate profits, which have hit all-time highs, drove 53% of inflation during the second and third quarters of 2023 for consumers across the United States. In the 40 years prior to the pandemic, profits drove just 11% of price growth. Kabu's Shea has more on the story. As corporate profits remain at all-time highs, a new report shows that more than half of rising consumer prices in 2023 were caused by corporate greed or greedflation. 
Elizabeth Pancotti with the D.C.-based think tank Groundwork Collaborative says before the pandemic, corporate profits drove just 11% of price growth. But even after supply chain issues were resolved, companies chose not to pass savings along to customers keeping sticker prices much higher than they probably need to be. And as a result, they have really padded their bottom line on the backs of American consumers to the tune of about 53% of inflation being driven by corporate profits for the most recent quarters. The report echoes analysis by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, which identified price gouging as the driving factor for inflation during the height of the pandemic. Some economists have argued these price hikes were due to companies bracing for future production costs, while others note corporate CEOs have a legal obligation to maximize profits for shareholders. Pancati says while production costs did rise by 1% in 2023, consumer prices still rose by 3.4%. She adds, For the past three years, CEOs have bragged on shareholder earning calls about high profits linked to raising prices. Even though their wage costs or their input prices have gone up, they are able to completely offset those by charging consumers more. So you don't have to listen to us. They've said it themselves. An economist at a leading global investment bank has warned that greedflation could lead to widespread social unrest. Pankati notes, the Trump administration's 2017 tax cuts gave corporations a tax break for profiteering, and those incentives are set to expire in 2025. Economists at UMass Amherst have also called for temporary price controls to prevent spiraling inflation in future crises. For KBU News and Public News Service, I'm Shay. A group of four dairy farmers is filing a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court of Oregon over new regulations it says will threaten small dairy farms. The Oregon Department of Agriculture has requirements for dairies that operate confined animal feeding operations, otherwise known as CAFOs. Until now, these requirements only apply to large industrial dairy farms to keep thousands of cows confined indoors. With the new policy, small dairy farmers would have to comply and install complicated drainage and holding systems that could cost more than six figures. One of the farmers in the lawsuit, Sarah King, keeps just three cows on her small farm. She milks two at a time and lets them spend the rest of their lives roaming freely in the pasture. Sarah sells the milk to people in her own community. The Oregon Department of Agriculture, quote, received concerns from the dairy industry about small dairies operating without CAFO permits. The lawsuit filed on January 25th seeks to stop the Oregon Department of Agriculture from enforcing the regulation against small dairies and have declared it unconstitutional. Starting April 1st, some small dairies could face fines if they are not registered as confined animal feeding operations. Some Portland police officers use force much more often than their peers. That's according to recent analysis of their use of force data. Portland has been under a settlement agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice since 2014 over problematic use of police force. The settlement is to address the Portland police's habit of unconstitutional police violence against people with mental illness. The agreement requires close tracking and heightened analysis of use of force data. And the overseeing Center for Justice Research and Innovation remains alarmed by the patterns in Portland. Extreme use of force by police is usually what makes headlines, but those events can be predicted by more frequent low-level use of force by certain officers. Seth Stoughton is a criminology professor at the University of South Carolina. He told OPB, quote, 
Are the officers using bad tactics where they're putting themselves into dangerous situations and then having to use force to address the danger of those situations? End quote. Analysis of the past five years shows that the 10 officers who have used low-level force more often than their peers have shot and injured or killed a member of the public. Even though the statistics are grim, the trend isn't inevitable. Experts say that early intervention can help. Software designed to track use of force can identify and draw attention to risky patterns. Interventions, like further training or reassignment, are options to help change officers' behavior and prevent unnecessary escalation. But all of the Portland officers who used force most often in the past five years are considered current on training. This includes use of force training. The question remains, when officers don't respond to training, does the Portland Police Department have the structure to restrain, reassign, or even terminate their most dangerous officers? According to OPB, zero of the most frequent users of force have been given leave or terminated. The McMinnville Short Film Festival is coming up from February 23rd through 25th. Kebu's Ezra has more on the story. Heather Wilder is the executive director of the McMinnville Short Film Festival. It's been going on for 13 years and showcases over 100 films and features talks with leaders and innovators in the filmmaking industry at the McMinnville Cinema. We represent emerging and and unique and original voices in short film, and we try to celebrate them over our festival. We have multiple events that go on that are open to the public to mix in with the filmmakers. All of our films are displayed digitally, so this is a first-run theater. And we have a wonderful set of guest speakers this year. Jonathan Raymond, who works with Kelly Reichardt, Liz Cardenas, who is an up-and-coming producer, as well as multiple other people, celebrities that come down and engage in this festival that's going on. Heather says short films are a creative medium allowing for more freedom of expression than traditional feature-length films. They can represent a calling card or be an introduction to the industry for new filmmakers. There's a history of film where short films were kind of looked at as a a starting point. And now if you look at the industry, uh, short films are now an expression outside of the studio system to do more engaging, emerging work. It engages the audience in sort of a way that Maybe it's viewed on what you can find looking up a streaming service. Um, It's exciting to see short films. The festival offers more than just films. It also features talks with established figures in the film industry in hopes of forging connections for up-and-coming creators. Our talks are industry-related for our filmmakers to be able to network, to gain knowledge, to advance their careers, and be able to do a Q&A back and forth with somebody who's actively working in the industry. This focus on networking is how Heather got involved. One of my short films premiered at the McMinnville Short Film Festival like four years ago, and I had such an incredible experience. I kind of stuck with it. I ended up volunteering for the executive director at the time, and then she ended up stepping down, and I kind of threw my hat in the ring and ended up becoming the executive director. And I'm just trying to provide the same experience that I had The festival focuses on diversity and inclusion with multiple categories from animation and comedy to documentary and experimental or just weird. We have documentary and social impact films and LGBTQ films. A lot of our filmmakers are 
coming from multiple different backgrounds and it's exciting to have a mixer where everybody can mingle in and hopefully future collaborate on work. The festival is about connection and thought-provoking art. The takeaway is meant to be that whoever you are and whatever your experience, you're not alone. You know, I think the goal of any good film festival is that they're going to sit in an audience situation and watch a film and they're going to feel recognized and might feel like they're not isolated, that they can relate and have conversation, whether it's a kid in the audience that's LGBTQ related, whether it's Native American or a woman or whomever that might watch something, a story on the screen and say, oh my gosh, I feel seen. That was Heather Wilder on the McMinnville Film Festival. More information is available at their website, mcminnvillefilmfest.org. For KBU News In Depth, I'm Ezra. You are listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Counterspin, your look behind the headlines with fairness and accuracy in reporting. At 6, it's Rising Up with Sonali. Then at 7, Civic Cipher. Tonight's weather will be cloudy with a low of 40. Tomorrow's weather, we'll see some glimpses of sunshine with a high of 52. Today in history, in 1986, Halley's Comet last appeared in the inner solar system. Halley is the only short-period comet visible to the naked eye from Earth. It passes by every 75 to 79 years, so its next appearance will be in mid-2061. Our quote of the day is from American singer-songwriter Carol King, born this day in 1942. She said, quote, My life has been a tapestry of rich and royal hue, an everlasting vision of the ever-changing view, a wondrous woven magic in bits of blue and gold, a tapestry to feel and see, impossible to hold. The Supreme Court listens to oral arguments in the Trump disqualification case. Senators still disagree about border policy. And Washington State considers changing how local elections are run. With those stories and more, it's Edwin J. Vieira with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection as that term is used in Section 3. Jonathan Mitchell, an attorney for former President Donald Trump, telling the Supreme Court that January 6th attack on the Capitol wasn't an insurrection as defined in the 14th Amendment. Many listening to Thursday's oral arguments say the court seems to be leaning toward overturning the Colorado decision blocking the former president's candidacy. Chief Justice John Roberts suggested letting individual states act could disrupt the election for all the states. But an ABC News Ipsos poll finds half of voters support removing Trump from the ballot. Washington Republicans like Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville call that a partisan move and says people should have the right to vote for who they want. Our entire system of government is based on the consent of the governed. Our country is based on the idea 
on the people with their ideas. While this case deals with the presidency, it could have implications for city and state elected officials. David Becker is with the Center for Election Innovation and Research. One thing there seemed to be agreement on was that states have authority to determine 14th Amendment qualifications for state officials. And this has been done as recently as 2022. He cited the case of a New Mexico County commissioner removed from office under the bar against insurrectionists for taking part in January 6th. In the Senate, the failure of the bipartisan border and foreign aid compromise is creating tension. Some Democrats are calling for new efforts on a comprehensive immigration bill, but neither party seems unified on how that could look. As for the new standalone foreign aid package, South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham said the bill's good, but he was hoping to make the previous deal even harsher for migrants. I didn't think it was enough. I was hoping to be able to build on what they did, but here's where we're at. The House declared it insufficient. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema worked on the border deal and questioned if anyone could have done that. Are you aware that the only way to offer amendments on a bill being considered in the United States Senate is to first pass the motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed? Republicans may attempt to amend tighter border rules into the standalone foreign aid bill. Washington state lawmakers are considering legislation supporters say could boost local election turnout by as much as 60 percent. The bill would permit cities and towns in Washington to change local elections from odd to even-numbered years. Andrew Villeneuve with the Northwest Progressive Institute says odd-numbered years draw far fewer voters, especially among marginal groups. They have very, very small numbers of voters participating, and it's also a much less diverse electorate than what we would see in an even year. So there's fewer voters of color, fewer young voters participating. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Last summer, locals living living near the Salish Kootenai Dam on Flathead Lake complained the lake was too low. But this week, federal regulators confirmed the dam didn't draw too much water out of the lake last summer. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Federal regulators this week said the Salish Kootenai Dam did not draw too much water out of Flathead Lake last summer. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports some residents blame the dam operator for historically low lake water levels. Flathead Lake's low waterline last summer was the result of a shallow snowpack and warm temperatures melting that snow quickly. Residents filed complaints with federal energy regulators, arguing that the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes drew too much water out of Flathead Lake. They say that harmed the tourism industry. Regulators say the dam stayed within the bounds of its license. The CSKT are fending off another complaint, too. A separate group of residents and business owners argues the dam should follow an old management plan that would keep more water in Flathead Lake. CSKT officials say that plan was never approved and would reduce downstream flows harming fish and other aquatic species. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. Nellie Moore was a broadcast journalist who leaves a big footprint in Alaska and beyond. She died last week at the age of 69. Moore was one of the first indigenous women to report in Alaska and was one of the early hosts of National Native News. KMBA's Rhonda McBride tells us how it all began in the Northwest Arctic community of Kotzebue with her father, Ed Ward, who inspired her lifelong passion for radio. You can thank Ed Ward. 
In a 2016 interview, she describes him as a man crazy about radio. I would always find the tubes that somebody needed and put them in the tube tester and make sure they worked. (laughs) I thought she was a rare find in many ways. Alex Hills first met Nellie when her father brought her to the Kotzebue Airport to meet the man who would become the first manager of KOTZ. Under Hill's guidance, the station went on the air in 1973. Nellie was barely out of high school when Hills hired her to be the station's first news director. Kind of spunky, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That was Hills on the same radio show as Nellie, there to talk about his new book on Alaska's early days of radio and telecommunications. One of the photos in the book is of Nellie when she interviewed the late Governor Jay Hammond at the airport, dressed in a pair of overalls with a blue bandana on her head. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, Nellie was leaning forward and the governor of Alaska was leaning back. That told me a lot about her interview style. She was a village girl and she wasn't going to be shy about talking to someone about important issues. Nellie's daughter, Liz Cravalho, says no matter how successful her mother became, she never changed. And that, says historian Paul Ontogook, was her legacy. Nellie demonstrated that journalism could be the voice of Alaska Native communities. Not long afterwards, Nellie went to work at KNBA in Anchorage, serving Native communities nationwide. For National Native News, I'm Nellie Moore. KNBA's president, Jacqueline Salee, says Nellie also produced programs the station continues to air today. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. The Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas is seeking Native youth to take part in its Native Youth Leadership Summit. The summit brings young people from across Indian country to the university to explore careers in food, agriculture, and nutrition. Applications are now open online for this summer's summit. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Kansas's attorney general wants to make it a requirement for public schools to out transgender and non-binary children to their parents. Last year, Attorney General Chris Kobach temporarily blocked Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's administration from allowing transgender people to change their sex on birth certificates and driver's licenses. Now, Kobach says failing to disclose what a child is socially transitioning or identifying it not as non-binary at school violates a parent's rights. He recently sent letters to six school districts and the State Association for Local School Board Members. In the letter, Kobach said schools and boards, quote, surrendered to woke gender ideology, end quote. The letter did not spell out penalties teachers and administrators would face for failing to comply with outing their students. At least four districts refused to rewrite their policies. LGBTQ plus rights advocates argue the Attorney General is seeking policies that put transgender and non-binary youth in physical danger. Jordan Smith is a non-binary leader of the Kansas chapter of the LGBTQ plus rights group Parasol Patrol. Smith said forced outing will create anxiety for students and might push some back towards being closeted. Five states currently have laws requiring students to inform parents if their children use different pronouns socially transition to a gender different than the one assigned at birth or present as non-binary. Another six have laws encouraging such behavior, but Kansas is on neither list. A bill introduced last year to bar schools from using the preferred pronouns for a student under 18 without written permission from a parent or guardian failed in the Kansas Senate. Kobach did not cite Kansas law in his letters, 
instead quoting U.S. Supreme Court decisions going back as far as 1923, which affirm parental right to control how their children are raised. That follows a pattern of GOP attorney generals asserting an authority not backed up by state law. Postal workers across the country are drawing attention to widespread problems with what they say are understaffed facilities. Workers say understaffing is affecting delivery time and customer service. Suzanne Potter has more on the story. Members of the American Postal Workers Union are calling for more staffing and better pay to reduce turnover. They say the problem is affecting mail delivery, particularly in rural areas. An audit by the Office of the Inspector General last year found the U.S. Postal Service lost almost 60 percent of its non-career employees in 2022. APWU California President Gary Davis says smaller rural post offices in towns like Alturas and Truckee are hit the hardest. These offices are understaffed in the northeast corner of the state due to the fact of not enough housing in those areas. The wages are not high enough for the people to work in that area. The Postal Service did not respond to a request for comment. But in a speech in November, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said the agency is trying to reduce labor costs because it lost $6.5 billion in 2023, and that is an improvement over much bigger losses in prior years. Davis says many workers see DeJoy's 10-year plan to make the Postal Service more efficient as misguided because the move to centralize mail processing has, so far, only led to more delays. He's spending billions of dollars trying to transform the Postal Service into mega plants. But he's crossing a couple states to get the mail that should be overnight or two days. Like it was back in 2012, now it's three to five days. That's not service. The U.S. Postal Service's goal is 95% on-time delivery. However, the agency's most recent performance report shows about 83% of first-class mail and about 92% of marketing mail is delivered on time. Most recently, winter weather has been a factor in the delays. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. In Nevada, legal and medical experts are weighing in on the implications of medical aid in dying, or MAID. It's a right that was voted on in Oregon in 1994, and starting about 20 years later, Washington State and nine other venues around the country adopted similar frameworks. MAID allows terminally ill people to end their lives through voluntary self-administration of lethal medications prescribed by a doctor. Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo vetoed the last attempt to legalize it in Nevada, but the issue could come up again in the 2025 legislative session. Alex Gonzalez has the story. Legal and medical experts from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas are discussing the implications of medical aid in dying. Medical aid in dying is when a terminally ill and mentally capable adult with less than six months to live can request a prescription for medication in case they choose to use it to end their suffering. David Orentliger with the UNLV Law School says 10 states and Washington, D.C. now allow medical aid in dying. Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo vetoed such a bill last year. Orentliger was one of the co-sponsors of SB 239 and thinks it could be presented again in 2025. Some fates are worse than death. When a patient gets to this point that they've got this irreversible and serious illness and they're greatly suffering, they may decide it's no longer worth continuing living. He notes a poll in 2020 showed 74% of Americans supported medical aid in dying. Opponents argue that with advances in medicine and science, palliative care can help reduce suffering at the end of life. 
Warren Licker says the U.S. tends to have stricter laws on the books than other countries, and that's no different for medical aid in dying. He says countries like Belgium, Canada, and the Netherlands also allow it, with fewer requirements. They allow physician or nurse administration. We don't. It's got to be self-administered. We have the terminal illness requirement. They don't, which seems counterintuitive because we're a more libertarian country as a general matter, and so you would think we would be more permissive. He says religion is another factor in the debate, as some faiths have strong feelings about a person ending their own life for any reason. For Nevada News Service, I'm Alex Gonzalez. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 9th, 2024.